Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. What is Ontario's raging dispute? Well, John Wright, the Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion, will join us to talk about that. Why is Joe Biden smiling this week? You'd be surprised. We'll give you the details. And low-flying loony points to continued weak business investments, which all means even weaker productivity and weaker economic growth for the future. That's not a good thing. What can revive Canadians' economy and Canadian dollar? We'll get some suggestions on that, too. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, of course, the big battle here in Ontario over the last few days has been between the provincial government and uh, the education workers, Ontario education workers, including education assistants, custodians, librarians. And uh, where is public opinion on this? Now, I know they haven't even begun negotiations again yet, and they haven't even rescinded uh, the back-to-work legislation yet. So we're kind of in a holding pattern here. But we want to get the public read on this. Well, our good folks at uh, Maru Public Opinion have already done something about that. Uh, and, the uh, well, the results are rather surprising. Joining us to talk about this is John Wright, who is the Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion. John, great to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Always a pleasure to join you, Bill. There's always an us versus them thing when any government is dealing with the public sector union. And, and you know, depending, I guess, on how much of an impact it's going to have on the public, uh, a lot of the time the, the, the public sentiment seems to swing to usually to the government. Like, yeah, we've got to keep costs in line, et cetera. But where are you on this one, John? Well, let's set some boundaries for interpretation. The first thing is that we have to remember that governments have people who have voted for them, and then we have people who haven't voted for them. So there's a natural Mm. battleground that's there. And that oftentimes shows up in every other poll that you do. The second thing is we have to remember that it doesn't take a majority of the people in Ontario to vote for uh, a government to get into power and have a majority government. That's the same way federally. So you need about 37 or 38 percent in order to do that. And the reason is because we have all kinds of different parties that people vote for. And, you know, that's that's about as good as it gets. So when the Ford government came in, in its last election campaign, it garnered 40.5% of the entire vote. So let's round it up to 41%. So that's the political battleground that was at the time. And when I took this poll the other night, we, what do we end up with? 59.41. So you can see here that, of course, the majority of people are going to, uh, in this poll, uh, side with the union on this, but it's also the same number who didn't want the Ford government to get in place. So that's the first thing you have to look at. And then secondly is how how you do the questionnaire. Um, there's a couple of different ways, but in one of them is to kind of educate people along the way. So I can say to you, you know, the first offer for the union was 11.7% and the government came in at 2.5. Who do you think is being more fair and reasonable? And you say, oh, this, oh, you know, you, you make your decision on that. And I say, well, now the union dropped it down to 6% and you go there. And then the next part is, well, there's this notwithstanding clause. You can get into all kinds of pieces. So what happens is is that you end up dealing with the atmospherics of an issue. It's not so much the the details. So when the premier uh, announced that he was pulling back in the morning, I decided I would do a poll that night. You've had the entire weekend, you've had the last week for people to get used to it. And you just ask him a a couple of simple questions. And that is, you know, have you been following it? Do you know anything about it? And 87% of people said they did. So then you ask those people one simple question. Based on what you know, who do you support? The government or the union? 
very much somewhat, not very much, not at all. So it's all about the atmospherics. And this is what you get, 5941 on that very simple question. And I think that's reflective of what the polling is for the government and for everybody else. So people are tuned in. Um, but the majority of people, in fact, stood with the union on this question. I'm so glad you guys do this, though, when you do your polling, though, John, to actually take uh, th these other factors into play here. I mean, as, as you say, you probably could have just done a poll, said, do you like Doug Ford? And the numbers would have been the same. Yeah. Uh, I, I, when we did a phone session on this just the other day, I guess it was uh, Monday when this whole thing was, was starting to percolate, uh, we did the phone. And I got to tell you, 90% of the people that called said, yeah, these teachers, I said, these are not teachers. This is a different battle, okay? But they just conflate that, and that's, you know, they just figure, yeah, education, these guys are overpaid, they get the summer off. And I said, that's not the same. I said, save your comments for about four months from now when that contract's up. But when people have a preconceived idea about what's going on right now, it certainly does color their opinion, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it does. I think, you know, we all have different audiences who call us, and they sometimes are, you know, particularly skewed, older, younger, or experienced in some ways, and so that that's going to happen. The the nature of good public opinion is to take and and remove all bias that you can find in it and make sure that mm -hmm. the audience has a chance to respond to it effectively. So then, you know, the next series of questions that I did were a series of statements. So agree, disagree with the following, or you could then move it into what I actually did choose. And that is of the following groups, who do you think is doing the kind of job you know, well, is it the government, the union, neither or both? And that's where you say, you know, who's got the, you know, the, the, the kids, the students at heart, like who's, who's looking after them the most? And you get a split. You get a split on every other question that comes from there. There's, there's you know, a little bit of an edge for the union in some questions, a little bit of uh, an edge to the government in others. So what it says to me is this, you know, I was on TikTok the other night. Um, before I go to bed, I kind of scroll through. It's a bad thing because it keeps me up for a while more. <laughs> um, and I and I saw some of the old versions of Yes Minister, that great political comedy yeah. that came out of the BBC many years ago. And Sir Humphrey's standing in front of the minister and the minister is saying, you know, we should be doing this on human rights and I want to do it. And there's a good discussion that takes place. And, and, and the minister says, isn't this the role of government? And Sir Humphrey looks at me and says, no minister. And he says, well, then what is it? And he says, it's to keep stability. Now let that come into play because it is about stability. People want stable elements in their lives. And so when people go on strike, they want them ruled back to work or they want something done to stop it. When um, there's political dynamism and confrontation going on, it means that everything else on the agenda, it might as well just be in the trash can because you can't move. There's nothing else you can do at the time. So I think what happened was that the, the, the public opinion poll reflects that. It basically says nobody's winning this contest. What we really want to do is solve it and we want a stable situation. And so um, notwithstanding the fact that the premier got a lot of calls from the union people saying, you know, we want this toned down because the notwithstanding cause itself will threaten our abilities going forward. So stop it. But they also called the QP leader and said, you stop it too. get back to the table. You're ruining everything in terms of how we can just move forward with our own agendas. And I think that's more important at this stage. You, we, we have bigger issues in this province sometimes, um, and particularly healthcare. People want the stability. They don't want the acrimony. And I think that's why we've got them back at the table today, and we'll see where it goes. 
What about the the notwithstanding clause, John? When, I know you talked about that and asked about mm-hmm. that as well. I mean, some people characterize it as a hand grenade that Ford threw into the negotiations. Uh, said, you know, there's a collective bargaining process, and and that's the the fairness, and and he's disrupting that. Uh, did that play into people's opinions? Yeah, in, in a couple of different ways. And again, first of all, <clears throat> you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of us are not legally you know, inclined when it comes to constitutional nuance. Mm-hmm. But people understand pretty much that if you explain to them a little bit about it, they get it. And I, what I saw in the numbers were very interesting. The first one was, if you said this is the time to use it, the answer is no. It's not. I mean, people don't think it. all the avenues were exhausted. If, on the other hand, they get to the table and the union decides to walk away now, then the public to 44% say, yeah, use it. And again, that's interesting. It's not the majority, but it's higher than what Mr. Ford came into office with. So it's, you know, you look at this politically as well, and you and I have seen this so much. I mean, the union had its strike mandate. It took it. And if you want to be generous to the government, they took their mandate and they put them side by side. So you pull the trigger on that, we'll pull the trigger on us. Unfortunately, though, the notwithstanding clause should be something, in my view, that's rarely used. It is something that overrides the charter of rights, and you don't want to go down that path. So it could be very precedent-setting. So we have all of these dynamics playing out. The public effectively does not want it used as a hammer, but more people than supported Mr. Ford at the outset of the uh, when he won the last election are willing to say, yeah, let's do it. Let's move ahead on this. So he still, did you notice that he hasn't shelved that he shelved the legislation. He hasn't taken it away. He hasn't. Re- no, not you yet. Know, so, so it's still there. So both sides have hammers. Hopefully they can work out an agreement where neither, neither of them have to use it. Uh, I, and I guess, as, as you say, everything here is context. Uh, even if, if you don't like the idea of the notwithstanding clause, uh, even if you maybe think that, the, you know, there's a legitimate reason why the education workers are going out there. You look at the last two and a half years, and I, I think there's a lot of people, John, still just saying, look, enough is enough. We don't need any more disruption. Do something about this. You know, I was in my garage the other day, and we've carried over the last 25 years a lot of bins that move from house to house and from kid to kid and i'm sure many others are like this and uh, i have a life that's been very involved in all kinds of really neat things and i just decided i'm going to start cleaning out those bins and it's a walk down nostalgia and i i don't have my high school or university texts those left a long time ago but i opened up one bin and it was my high school stuff the stuff I saved. And I went down and I found my yearbook from 1974 at Markham District High School. And I started leafing through it. And there it was, about eight pages in. It had a page where it had a whole series of buttons saying, we support our teachers. You know, get kids back in school. And I remembered back in 1974 um, and 70, 73, 74, there was a teacher strike then. And we were all out for a period of time. We even had um, our school band was actually uh, taught uh, as we went to the Kiwanis Festival by um, by one of the dads who played in the symphony orchestra. Like we, the point being that this has been a fixture in everybody's life for as long as I can remember. My kids, my first generation kids went through it. The second generation kids have gone through it. I went through it. You probably went through it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And you want to stop it somehow. And the only way through that is. If you're going to do uh, make them essential services and there's 
legal issues around that. I get it. But even when you ask people at the end of the day, should we make them essential services? The majority say yes. And people can then say, yeah, but they're going to ratchet up their wages and get it, you know, get more than what they would. And they'll always, you know, ratchet up all the public sector wages because of that essential service clause. People don't care. They say, look, there's two prices that I can pay. I can either pay in taxes and a little bit more money here, or I can pay with the stability of my life and making sure that the kids are back in school and being looked after. And I think to round that all out, you're absolutely right. We've been through two and a half to three years of total disruption for these poor kids who need to be in the classroom. When you ask people in this poll, who cares for them the most? You, you get basically get none of the above. Yeah. So, you know, we've got to focus on a solution to this to get the stability. And we've got to make sure that those kids have the education they need so they can move forward. A pox on both their houses, I guess. John, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Really appreciate the time. It's always great to be with you. Thanks so much. Take care. John Wright, who is the Executive Vice President of Meru Public Opinion. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're probably learning more about constitutionality and, and notwithstanding clauses than we probably ever wanted to know about. But all of a sudden, it's been thrust upon us by uh, the action, the attempted action anyway, by the Ford government. So exactly what is this and what about the application of this? And, and is it the nuclear bomb that some people are characterizing it as? Uh, I want to bring uh, Andrew Fujiarelli into the cards. Andrew, of course, is a lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Uh, Andrew, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. Thanks to be on. Uh, nice to be on. Wanna, thanks for I, having me, I should say. Well, it's, it's good to it's good to get a, a perspective on this because uh, I want to get away from the politics of this. And this is this is a law. This was enshrined. This was part of the constitutional debate many years ago, which I vaguely remember. I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it at the time because I thought this was a, this was introduced as a deal breaker to basically assuage some of the concerns of the province of Quebec. You know, well, the federal government's not going to just steamroll legislation that's going to kill your culture. You can block it with this. And I said, okay, fine, if that's what it took to make the deal. But it seems as if provinces other than Quebec are starting to use this right now simply as a sledgehammer to move their agenda forward. It, it, that, I don't think, was the intention of this, was it? Well, it was certainly um, the idea that Trudeau had famously when he agreed to the deal. He said, uh, I'll agree to this because no one's ever going to use it or words to that effect. The idea being that... <laughs> Um, the charter was a very popular part of the new constitution that was enshrined in 1982. And the notwithstanding clause would necessarily mean uh, that there's legislation here that is curtailing uh, people's rights. Uh, and so it would be very unpopular to do. And I think time has proven that to be, um, while often the case, not necessarily true. Uh, Quebec, as you've said, has used it um, several times with respect to language rights issues. Um, and uh, now you're seeing other provinces using it or, or threaten the use of it. Saskatchewan has used it in the past um, on some of its legislation. You've seen now Ontario using it, um, or at least trying to use it in this situation um, before uh, you, you saw the uproar take place and they had to back down. Um, and Alberta's threatened using it too. So um, I think we're in a situation where you can start to see a trend where the use of it in certain situations is going to be more prevalent. I'm not saying it's going to be widespread, but I think you're starting to see movement in that direction where legislatures are feeling a bit more comfortable uh, deciding to invoke it. Just how black and white is this, Andrew? I mean, we're being told or that this is being characterized as as soon as they invoke this, debate's over. 
this thing moves forward and there's not a darn thing you can do about it. Is, is it that blunt? Uh, uh, yes, it is. I mean, you, you can come up with creative arguments as to why the notwithstanding clause can't be used in certain situations because there's other rights that are engaged. So if you step back, Bill, the notwithstanding clause only hits certain sections of the charter. It's only section two, which are the freedom of religion, freedom of expression, uh, freedom of assembly rights, which were at stake here in Ontario, because those are that's the basket of rights that deals with union rights and the right to strike and the right to organize, etc. And then the criminal law rights. So those are section seven to, to 15 and, and the equality rights section in section 15. Those are the charter rights that the notwithstanding clause can trump on legislation. So one way to try to get around it is to say, no, this legislation, yeah, it, it, it affects those rights that the notwithstanding clause can trump, but it also affects other rights that the notwithstanding clause is not allowed to touch. And, and you can say that there are breaches of those rights. But failing that, if the notwithstanding clause is uh, invoked in legislation and it hits one of the sections um, that it's allowed to trump, then it's black and white. Because I'm, I'm looking at, at the premier's rationalization for this in, in some of the comments he made yesterday, uh, and, and he still justifies, uh, you know, using this or attempting to use it anyway. Uh, he says, but you know, what's even worse than using Section 33 is threatening to go on strike to shut down the economy of Ontario. And I guess what he's uh, referring to there, Andrew, is the threat from other unions when this uh, was starting to hit the fan that there was going to be a general strike one day in support of, of, of the CUPIA workers. They were talking about it. It hadn't been organized or anything, but it was out there. It was a, it was a threat, frankly. Uh, but it sounds as if Ford is simply saying, well, I didn't want a general strike that would have made my government look bad, so I'm going to invoke this. It sounds as if he's trampling on rights of, of, of other elements, as you say, of the charter right now. So you can't, I guess, challenge the fact that he's used it, but can you like they're doing with the Inquiries Act in Ottawa right now? Can you challenge that 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 it's even applicable here, or is it just game over? It, 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 the legislation would have been game over um, for the um, uh, for the the union affected here, for the QP union affected here. Uh, what changed the game here was political pressure. There was a legal argument um, that was made at the Labour Board that may well have been yeah. successful. Um, that that other rights, that other baskets of rights were affected by the legislation. And so what the union was doing was not a strike such that it would breach the legislation. And so the notwithstanding clause doesn't really come into play. And they might have won on that. And they certainly would have had a sympathetic, they certainly had a sympathetic audience to it because of how shocking this was, I believe, for the people, for, for labor unions and people in the labor movement um, about a government essentially not only taking away a union's right to strike, but also imposing a contract on them, which goes against everything about collective bargaining. It goes against the essence of collective bargaining. So at the end of the day, what happens is, while that sympathetic argument is there and may have taken some of the wind out of the government's sails if the Labour Board ruled in their direction, what really changed the game here was the political pressure. There's the public pressure that happened. And then there was also the behind-the-scenes pressures of other unions that the Ford government tried to court in the run-up to the election, saying, we can't stand with you on this. It's such a broadside against the labor movement that we have to support CUPE in this. 
And that that's, goes back to what Trudeau was originally talking about when he made that comment. It's actually an example of that as the counter to governments using this more often. Here you saw a government using the notwithstanding clause in a very broad and very radical way. And you saw the idea of the unpopularity seep through, not just from the public at large, but from the very affected actors who have political pull who don't want to see these changes. Wow. Well, I'd like to say it's all behind us right now, but it's it hasn't been rescinded yet. Andrew, great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this today. Yeah, no problem, Bill. Take care. Take care. Andrew Furge, you're a lecturer in the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, they're still counting votes south of the border. Uh, I was just thinking of the last presidential election. Remember Donald Trump wanted them to stop counting at midnight. And you just don't work that way. Every vote gets to count. And uh, there's still some very, very tight races. But uh, there are some takeaways to take from this uh, U.S. election, the midterm elections, of course. Uh, election deniers, in other words, those who backed Donald Trump and said that he got ripped off in the last election, uh, their efforts uh, to overturn the 2020 U.S. presidential election may not be very fruitful because an awful lot of them ran and were defeated or at least didn't come up with some of the big uh, numbers that they wanted to to try to move that agenda forward. Ben Thomas has details for us. Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin went for President Biden in 2020. In 2022, the Republican nominees for governor in those swing states all repeated Donald Trump's false claims that the presidential election had been stolen, and all three of those candidates lost. After winning re-election, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers, the Democrat, told his supporters, You showed up because you saw our democracy was on a brink of existence, and he decided to do a damn thing about it. But nearly a third of the 85 Republican candidates for governor, secretary of state, and attorney general embraced Trump's efforts to overturn his 2020 loss. About half won. And in two key states, Arizona and Nevada, races for top posts remain too close to call. I'm Ben Thomas. So uh, what does this all mean? And we're not just talking about, of course, internally in the United States. It's it's the big dog, of course, in the world and uh, has a lot of influence. And uh, who controls the Congress and the Senate is going to go a long way towards how those policies are going to be developed. Joining us to talk about this is Wayne Petrosi. Uh, Wayne is a professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto's Metropolitan University. Uh, professor, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, you're more than welcome. Let me ask right off the top, the, the mantra that Biden was using and many of the Democrats uh, in the run up to this was democracy is on the ballot. And that was obviously a reference to some of the policies that Trump was enacting and some of the Trump followers and the deniers, etc. Did, did Americans respond to that? I think only partly. Uh, one thing I'll be interested in seeing is overall turnout in this midterm election. Typically in the United States, midterm election turnouts are significantly lower than in the general election election. Uh, when the president is on the ballot. So we'll have to wait for turnout to, to get a sense of, of, of whether or not there was a kind of a surge. I think more generally, it, it, they managed to push this off the issues that the, the democracy argument is really concerned with. They pushed them off for another two years. This isn't over. Let's talk about the numbers, though. I mean, you know, the Democrats uh, had a slight lead in the House of Representatives, and, and essentially they, they control the Senate simply because the vice president gets a deciding vote on tough issues like this. Uh, that may be slipping away. At least it is in the Congress anyway. What kind of an impact is that going to have on, on the Biden administration and some of the programs they still hope to, to move forward to try to battle this uh, economic crisis that we're all facing? 
I, I think initially it, the the Biden administration is going to find that uh, any momentum it might have built up by its past legislative accomplishments, which were significant, will that momentum will will dissipate. Uh, it's not clear how far, how much uh, it'll be replaced by just gridlock, uh, because the Republicans in the House have their own issues to sort out, and the, whoever the Republican leader is. Uh, in the House is not going to have an easy time and is going to find himself, most likely a, a, a male, himself uh, really boxed in by the different factions within the Republican uh, House. Well, and you're right about those factions. I mean, when you look at some of the things that are being talked about here, uh, there are still some moderate Republicans. Uh, they, they may not be a, a big number, but they're there. Uh, but you juxtapose them with some of the other people in the party that were saying, boy, if we control uh, the Congress after this, uh, we're going to impeach Biden. We're going to investigate his son. We're going to investigate Anthony Fauci. They had a whole long laundry list. I, I would imagine even for a guy like McCarthy, who's probably going to end up being the House leader for the Republicans, uh, I don't know where he is on a lot of those issues, but, I mean, uh, is he going to be supportive of moving that rather aggressive uh, and, and incendiary agenda forward? I suspect if he wishes to accomplish anything on the legislative front, he's going to have to give give in on the question of the oversight committees and the endless parade of, of impeachment hearings that were likely uh, to be reading about or hearing about uh, in, in the media. So I, he will tolerate that if he can, in return, get some agreement on the legislative front. What I want to go back to the numbers, if I could, uh, because midterms, as you mentioned, first of all, voter turnout is usually fairly low in these situations. But the other element of this is invariably the government who's in power in the White House, the president, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, usually gets their, their head slapped during these midterms. They they oftentimes will lose power in, in one or both of the houses, and significantly, too. I mean, it happened to Obama, yes, but it also happened to Reagan. It happened to Bush. It happened to just about everybody. That didn't happen. That big red wave that everybody was anticipating didn't happen. What 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 what, what changed things? I think a couple of things uh, locked in this time to really hurt the Republican uh, momentum. One was they remained unabashedly attached to Trump and his nonsense about stolen elections. Two, the Democrats had the good luck, I hate to call it that, of having a just uh, an outrageous Supreme Court decision which catapulted abortion back onto the front pages and top of mind of, of many Americans. When you combine that, uh, those two things together, it, it blunted the Republican wave and turned it into not much more than a ripple yeah, which is, uh, yeah, the big red ripple, I guess they're calling it now, is a big, the big red wave. Uh, some of the comments, I guess, of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife, for that matter, too, about moving further down that road with uh, Roe versus Wade and, 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 and some other, uh, shall we call, small L liberal legislation that's already on the books, rescinding some of that, too, uh, might have been a factor, wouldn't it? I, I think there was a great deal of shock, really, within a, a significant portion of the American electorate uh, at both the the nature, the decisions Supreme Court's made. It's about to make another one. I suspect uh, affirmative action on university campuses will yeah. come to an end, end of day. 
So that shocked a lot of people. And the, the fear that they weren't likely to stop at this, that the uh, same-sex marriages, uh, LGBTQ rights, uh, amazingly enough, even one or two Republican House members talked about returning to the good old days when uh, interracial marriage was a crime. Well, which was rather interesting since Clarence Thomas himself uh, is uh, a member of a mixed race uh, marriage. But then, well, we'll go down that road, I guess, if they ever try to, uh, to open that book up again. You mentioned Donald Trump a second ago, Professor. Uh, there's a lot of speculation now about what his future might be within the party. Uh, he had made the announcement yesterday that he's going to make an announcement next week. Uh, I guess he, like a lot of other people, was anticipating a, a huge Republican victory. Uh, the anticipation was he wanted to ride that wave to announce that he was going to run for president again. Uh, the wave didn't happen. Uh, and, and a lot of Republicans now are suggesting that the message out of here is that Trump's influence in this party is waning, if not gone altogether. How do you read it? Well, it, in one sense, it's really a marriage, a perfect marriage, Trump and the, and the Republican Party at this point. I mean, if you think about it for just a second, the same Republican House conference and, and, and Senate leadership, they could look past months of outrageous lies about fixed elections. They could look past an attempt to overthrow, to prevent the, the transition to a new president. They could look past all that and still go down to Florida and bend the knee. Now it seems they've reached their their line in the sand, which is amazingly, oh, he's lost some elections, so maybe we should cut bait with this fella. Uh, it, the party has no soul at this point, and it makes it a really good match with Mr. Trump. The uh, person in the wings, of course, is uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, of course, easily won re-election uh, this week. Uh, he has been hinting uh, that he might be interested in this. Nobody seems to want to make an, an official announcement uh, for fear that uh, the, the Trump supporters, I guess, would just inundate them and, and uh, deter them from this. Uh, does DeSantis move ahead? I mean, is it going to be a matter of who announces first as to who's going to have any momentum here? Or does Trump even back down altogether now? I think it was always a matter of it was in doubt whether Mr. Trump would would go ahead. Uh, it's much easier to sit in Mar-a-Lago and to lay hands on would-be candidates than it is to actually be a candidate. There are some legal implications around his various court issues uh, that would trigger, would become involved if he was to announce his candidacy. So he's had reasons to hold off. As for the rest of the field, I, I think it's pretty clear uh, DeSantis will toss his hat in the ring. I don't have any doubt about that. And I suspect some of the other candidates that have been flying around the margins of this, like Mike Pence, will also go. But again, the, there's no need to rush into it because then certain requirements fall into place around your campaign and campaign spending and campaign fundraising that don't kick in while you're not a candidate. I, I want to mention one thing too that doesn't get a whole lot of, of, of media attention, but it, we found out two years ago, Professor, in the general election, how important states' legislatures were when it comes to counting ballots, who's allowed to vote, when they're allowed to vote, etc. As as I think one pundit explained, uh, there is really no U.S. general election. There are fifty uh, general elections uh, for president, and and you know they all have their own sets of rules, etc. 
How important was it for the Democrats to make gains in some of those key states and maintain uh, the, the Democratic governorships in places like Wisconsin and, and Michigan? Very important, because the fact of the matter is, in those states where the Rep Republicans continue to exercise uh, political authority, they will continue down the road of restricting the vote by making putting more and more onerous conditions on the vote and the voting process. They're going to continue that. They made some significant inroads since 2020, and they've got another two years for Republican legislatures at the state level to move in, in that direction further still, and they, and they will. So there's always going to be that concern and that ongoing debate about what's going to happen uh, via access, I guess, to voters. Foreign policy, I mentioned Ukraine at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, there were some Republicans uh, that were running and some incumbent Republicans uh, that were saying enough is enough. We don't need to be giving Ukraine any more uh, money. Uh, it, it's about time that they were on their own two feet. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's actually even some pro-Russian sentiment among some of those Republicans uh, of the Trump ilk as well. It, does that die with uh, the results on Tuesday? I don't think it dies, but I, I, I would point out that uh, in the American system, the the uh, the president, the executive branch, has a fair bit of discretion in matters related to foreign policy, and I would think that any attempts uh, from within, uh, say, the House of Representatives, where the Republicans are likely to be the majority party, any attempts to rest restrict the flow of that, I, I don't think will be successful. The aid will continue. It's, uh, as I say, not a done deal yet. There are still some very tight races and voters are counted and there's a runoff in Georgia. So uh, more to come on this in the, the in weeks, I guess, like ahead because the runoff in Georgia is not going to be for some time yet. Professor, always a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, you're welcome. Good to talk. Thank you. Take care. Professor Wayne Vitrosi uh, from, of course, uh, Toronto's Metropolitan University. Uh, and, and this matters to us. Why? Well, because this is the biggest country in the world. This is the most influential country in the world. Uh, we saw what can happen, how things can go badly uh, if you get the wrong person in the White House. You saw those four uh, years of tumultuous trade negotiations, of, of you know tariffs being imposed, the things that it did to our economy, uh, the things that it did to the G7, how it emboldened Vladimir Putin. So it does matter who's in the White House, uh, because it impacts Canada, it impacts the rest of the world, it impacts just about every facet of it, economically, politically, and everything else. And the, the question is still there, who's going to be in the White House? The, the next general election is now two years away. Uh, Donald Trump may or may not run. Uh, Ron DeSantis may or may not be the Republican nominee. Uh, what about Joe Biden? He's talking about thinking about it. And at this moment, he says, as of today, yes, I'm running for a second term. But even a number of the people that voted democratically and, and voted for Democratic candidates on Tuesday night uh, apparently suggested that they didn't think Biden should be the Democratic nominee. That's kind of a kick in the pants. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we just mentioned, inflation is 6.8% last month. Uh, we've got concerns about prices. We've got concerns about going to the gas pump, about going to the grocery store. Uh, but we're told the Bank of Canada has our best interests at heart. They're going to continue to raise interest rates at least one more time, we're told. Uh, and and you know what? That's going to curb inflation and, and everything is going to go, you know, it's going to take time, but everything's going to be fine. Well, you look at some of the indicators here and you have to wonder whether or not this is all going the way it's supposed to. Uh, the Canadian dollar is trading very, very low these days. The economy is looking lousy. Uh, you know, one of the things that probably should be happening here when the dollar is low is that uh, that creates more exports, right? 
but that's not happening either. So what what went wrong here? Uh, on the way back to to you know decent financial times. Let's get Marvin Ryder into the conversation here. Marvin, of course, is a professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, good to have you with us today. Uh, there's a you, formula Bill. for this, as you've told us in the past, that, uh, and this is what, uh, of course, um, is going on with the Bank of Canada right now. And and these these interest rate increases are supposed to supposed to, in time, uh, level everything out and get us back to a decent, uh, you know, economic foothold, I suppose. Uh, but you look at some of these indicators here, like the Canadian dollar, foreign investment, and the things that should be helping to uh, to to make this a better economy. They're not happening, are they? Well, if, if you don't mind, can I just say that it's more of a mixed picture? Uh, last Friday, we got data on employment in Canada. We had the job rates for the month of August, and or August, October. And in October, the Canadian economy added 108,000 jobs. That is not what you see in a recession. That is not what you see in a difficult economic time. There were plenty of pundits, people like me, who might have said, well, if we've got a good October, maybe we'd add 10,000 jobs. We had 10 times that number, and we still have nearly a million people uh, or a million jobs that are going unfilled in the country at large. So what I'm trying to suggest to you is that there are some mixed stories here. And the concern is, are we all pulling together? Is all of this going in the right direction? So use the example of the Bank of Canada raising interest rates. That in and of itself should help. But it depends if you get headwinds from other places. And one of the concerns has been the Canadian dollar. Now, let's put that in some context. For, for many, many years, the Canadian dollar traded in a range between 75 and 80 cents U.S. But today, it's trading more in the range of 73 to 74 cents U.S. Well, okay, Marvin, that's a couple of pennies. What's the big deal? When you, when you flip it around to what we can buy, suddenly anything that we import has automatically gotten three, four, five percent more expensive. That isn't really inflation. That's really the, the low Canadian dollar. And why has the Canadian dollar gone down? Well, again, normally the Canadian dollar floats the way oil prices do. Oil prices had gone south. They'd got to down to $70 a barrel a couple of months ago, but now they're trading closer to $90 a barrel. Why didn't the Canadian dollar go up? I would argue that's because of the general uncertainty thanks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. For whatever reason, whenever you've got this kind of global uncertainty, everyone rushes and sells their local currency and buys US dollars. But, you know, just take that aside. What we're trying to suggest to you is we still haven't got all the different pieces coming together, working in lockstep towards making things better. And for that reason, you're going to get these mixed messages. One. One number is going to seem to reassure you. One number is going to undermine that as it goes. And and uh, I don't blame people for feeling confused during this time period. But one of the other elements of this that you've talked to us about over the years is uh, infusions of foreign investment uh, into our economy, which are essential. Yes. And and when the dollar has been low, you know that's the bad news. The good news is that's usually usually an attraction for foreign investors because you can get a bargain here. Yes. Uh, but that's not happening to any great degree here either. Why not? Well, uh, so yes, you're absolutely right on this. And and most of that investment typically has been in primary things, meaning oil extraction yeah. or mining of ores or those sort of uh, cutting down trees, turning them into lumber. That's not where that investment comes. Well, one of the things that hurt us, and, and again, Christia Freeland, believe it or not, did address this last Thursday in her economic update. If I take you back a couple of months ago, uh, prior to the midterm elections in the United States, 
the uh, Biden team were able to successfully pass something around uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, I've jokingly said if you read the Inflation Reduction Act, I don't see how it reduces inflation at all. But one of the things it uh, put out or, or, or listed in there were various American government subsidies on investments in things like uh, electricity generation, uh, alternate energy, clean uh, uh, gas extraction, oil extraction. Uh, and so there were government incentives. And trust me, the business community combs through those acts with a, with, with, with a microscope looking for anything that could benefit them. And while they were doing that, they said, by the way, what's Canada got? And the answer was, well, Canada didn't really have anything. Now, Christia Freeland has promised that Canada is going to match some of those subsidies. But for the time being, America has some subsidies that businesses want to take advantage and Canada doesn't. So that uh, foreign investment is heading south of the border. I think it's a temporary thing. I think it will also correct itself in two, three, four months. But again, it shows you that we're not in this global situation on our own. We've got to pay very much attention to what other countries are doing. And if they do something like this, we've got to decide, are we matching them or are we going to be left behind? If Canada is going to have a role in cleaner energy generation, then yes, it probably means the government's going to have to do more to subsidize some of that. And I think they, their attention was focused elsewhere. Well, and let's talk about that because you've always mentioned when it comes to any kind of investment, uh, what investors want, first of all, well, you're looking for a good deal, but they want stability. Uh, that's that's not a word you get thrown around an awful lot these days with this economic picture. Well, that's again, that is fair to say. So if, if I'm a company, and let's say I was going to make a $2 billion investment in something, whatever that something happens to be, is this the right moment to do that? For instance, if I waited till next year, would I get a better return on my investment? Would I get a bigger bang for my buck? Or would I have more certainty about which way the world is going? Uh, certainly, these midterm elections uh, have been a bit of a surprise to the average person from outside the United States looking at them. We assume the Republicans were going to roar back and take charge of both the House and the Senate which would more or less uh, handcuff President Biden for the next two years of his presidency. Now, yes, the Republicans did well in this midterm election, but it wasn't the red wave that we all thought it was. And this is one of those uncertainty. I can't predict with much certainty what's going to happen a day from now, two weeks from now. So businesses tend to hold back a little bit. And, and Bill, I can tell you that getting that confidence in the business community, it's not easy to do. It's easier to lose the confidence than win it back. And it seems to be time. Time seems to be the big thing. The more they can begin to see patterns emerging, patterns that they can predict and then use to their advantage, then their confidence comes back. But when you uh, bounce around, so let me just give you another quick example. If you've been paying attention over the last week, look at the volatility at Twitter. Now that Elon Musk is there, he mm -hmm. fired 3,700 employees. He's talking about charging people for their Twitter accounts or at least charging $8 a month if you want a verified account. Uh, we've seen uh, a reduction in the protocols on things like uh, uh, hate speech and, and racist speech. That led some uh, in, uh, advertisers to pull their money. Um, and so while this is going on, we also just witnessed that uh, Facebook uh, did layoffs for 11,000 workers. That's a little more than 10% of their workforce. And Mark Zuckerberg stood up and said, I blame myself for this. I misread the tea leaves. 
on how things were going to be in after COVID. I assumed that all those people who switched to buying online were going to stay there. And it turns out as we get into more of a post-COVID world, we're going back to our habits before COVID. And he guessed it wrong. So guess what? Unfortunately, you lose your job because of it. These sorts of issues, and they affect Amazon. They also affect Microsoft. These are always considered the, the, the stalwarts of the American economy, and they've been reading things wrong. That all leads to that volatility. So I wish I could say there was just one button I could push to make everything better again. Uh, it, it's a whole bunch of buttons, and this is where Bank of Canada has part of this, but so does the government. So do the provinces and territories, and even the business community itself. It's, it's a volatile time. It will get better, but not until 2023. I mean, we were looking back at the days of the NAFTA negotiations with the Trump administration, with Lighthizer, and 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 yep. now that ilk, and thinking those were the volatile times. So it's all relative, I suppose. But uh, uh, we're looking for shoots of stability here, I guess. And and uh, with another uh, U.S. election coming up in two years, uh, and uh, and a minority government here, I guess that stability is is well, it's we're going to have to create it, I guess, because it's not going to come naturally in situations like this. Yeah, but where is extent. the money? Go ahead, well, I was going to say, Bill, to some extent, but if you know Justin Trudeau and, and uh, Jagmeet Singh struck this accord to try to give you stability for the next couple of years, and, and actually so far it's been working, I think we have more stability in Ottawa than we would typically have during a minority government. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see, especially as you say, because the, the, the investment in green technology and green energy seems to be the focus uh, for both those parties. And, uh, you know, just see if those dollars are going to flow here as they might expect. It certainly did uh, with some of the announcements of the auto industry, but you'd like to see some of the, the big bucks and some of those big investments coming this way, too. And that's that's got to help. Marvin, always great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for this today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Take care. Marvin Ryder, professor of the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.